Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and welcome to what is our Halloween podcast. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series of books, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, all of which are available, nine volumes, at Amazon, in ebook, Kindle, and paperback. So go out there and buy a couple of copies. And also, for you audiophiles, Volumes 1 through 8, available at Audible, Amazon, and iTunes as well. So please partake of them. And may I introduce you now to my brother and co-host, K.J. Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm doing great. How about you, Bill? I'm doing fantastic. And as we come out of the gate here, I have to tell you of something absolutely remarkable. Oh, that has happened. Now, I believe I mentioned on the podcast uh, a couple of episodes back about the two little cats on my wife's jewelry box that I believed had moved. Did I? I don't think you did, or I was sleeping during that portion. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me tell you, for those of you who don't know, my wife went to heaven in July. And on top of her jewelry box, there were two little colorful cats, one yellow, one green. They're like little tiny sculptures, inexpensive. You know, this is not, uh, I don't even know what they're made out of. They could be plastic. Uh, But they're little figurines, brightly painted with flowers uh, as details on the body. Now, my wife, being Spanish, used to call me Gato, and I always thought she said Cato, (laughs) but Gato does mean cat in Spanish. So when I was cleaning up the house after a year of really having not touched anything, uh, I had been dusting and doing all kinds of stuff, just generally cleaning up the house. And I swore to myself that I had put these two cats after dusting off the jewelry box and the dresser and all this stuff in line with each other, like one facing one way and one facing the other way, right behind it, like two of them placed one behind the other. Well, a couple of weeks had gone by, and I was standing in front of the dresser one night or one day, And one of the cats, for some reason in my mind, when I was standing there, I said, was one of these cats moved? I don't even know why it hit me that way. Like, how would you notice two little cats with all of the tchotchkes and stuff around the house? But I did. And I said to myself, huh. So here's what happened. I put the two cats back lined up, and I took a picture of them. And I said, this time, I'm not going to forget. And I said to Paula, cat, and we used to call each other cat. I'd call her cat, she'd call me catillo, catoon, all this stuff. It was kind (laughs) of like a term of endearment. I said, cat, I know you could do a lot of things. I'm not sure what you could do, but I know you could do a lot of things where you are and how you are now. After all, Jesus could walk through walls, eat with the apostles, you know, speak with them, sit down. There's a lot of things we could do. I said, I want you to move this cat back over. I think you moved it. I want you to move it back over the way it was. 
Well, I've been looking at these two cats now for probably at least two weeks. Guess what happened last night? (laughs) I came home from work. I got tears in my eyes. I came home from work, and the one little cat was moved over. Wow. No earthquakes, nobody else in the house, nothing. And I just started jumping up and down and laughing, and it was so fantastic. So I wanted to share that with you, and I took another picture of them, uh, comparing the two photographs from the one I had taken and what had happened, and this thing was definitely... Uh, moved back over just as I had asked her to do. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, Bill. No, you yep. definitely have not shared that. Yep. So I know a lot of you people out there were uh, uh, praying for me and her and still doing so, and I really appreciate that. And uh, so to be continued. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very cool. Pretty fantastic, huh? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and again, you know, the difference being there's absolutely nothing creepy about this. This is not like you think you have a ghost in your house or, you know, weirdness. There's total peace, calm, and that's the difference between something that happened correctly going uh, to our afterlife, our eternal home, and when it doesn't happen Correctly, There's When it different... gets a little disrupted in the journey. Yeah, a lot disrupted. So there you have it, folks. I hope that shed a little light on your day, because I'm telling you, I was laughing, clapping my hands, rejoicing. You have no idea what it was like in my house with me alone last night at about 11.45. It was incredible. That's awesome, though. <laughs> Pretty well, cool, Hakim. That is fantastic. Yep, and, yep. And unfortunately, you tell us this fantastic, beautiful story, but we have to depart from that. Uh oh. <laughs> As you know, this is the Halloween edition. <laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs> and- oh. Don't wake up, Martha. <laughs> but it is, in fact, time for some creepiness. Oh, boy. Here we go. Oh, yeah. Batting down the hatches. Here comes the creep fest. And what's really interesting about what I researched for this episode, Bill, is I found some new information, or at least new to me, a couple of months ago. About the Salem witch trials. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) So get ready for a lot of email, Bill. Okay, here we go. From the witches. (laughs) No, but it's pretty interesting um, what one of the causes of the Salem witch trials may have been. So first, we're going to go back and we're going to review a little bit about the, the Salem witch trials. And then we're going to talk about this relatively new theory that's out there that is pretty darn interesting. And again, this is the cryptids in the news and other oddities segment. So um, it kind of fits right in the wheelhouse, especially during Halloween. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But first... uh, I have to make an announcement that no witches were harmed in this episode. And if any of you think that my brother and I are laughing or joking about how witches, and not even real witches, innocent people were killed during the witch trials, we're not laughing at that. We're having fun with one another. We don't get joy out of innocent people being killed. Well, Even that's a fact. Witches. So hopefully that'll cut the email down from 500 to maybe 200. <laughs> 201. 201? Okay. okay. Well, I tried. I tried. 
All right, so we are going to talk about the Salem Witch Trials for a couple of minutes, and a lot of this information uh, comes from Smithsonian Magazine that did an article about 15 15 years ago on uh, the history of the Salem Witch Trials. That's pretty spectacular, so we're going to touch on that. So starting out, of course, uh, the Salem Witch Trials occurred back in colonial Massachusetts, so before it was a state, and before the United States was a country, in 1692 and 1693. So it was a relatively short period, about 18 months long, where more than 200 people in this small little village were accused of practicing witchcraft, and 20 of them were eventually put to death. Boy, that's a lot of people. It is a lot of people, and in a short amount of time, and it just shows how kind of crazy things were in Salem back then. Yeah, yeah, a lot of accusations. Yeah, and now today, you know, of course, Salem is a place that a lot of people visit during uh, Halloween and stuff like that to get a little creeped out. And when you were talking, Bill, about how smoothly things go with someone going to heaven, um, you know, perhaps uh, there is some... uh, uh, fact to the creepiness up there, considering of how brutally uh, these folks were uh, were executed and uh, and all of the uh, evil that surrounded, you know, them being put to get put to death. Not necessarily what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear, yeah. Now that place now has become an attractant. To based on the amount of people that are there and the activities that are going on, uh, that place has become a magnet for activity because of that. Yep. So the door is wide open there, so to speak, for uh, spiritual mayhem to occur. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and it's important to note, so we're talking about 1692 to 1693, But this witch hunting craze started uh, much earlier in Europe, right? So, so, and back then in Europe, um, from the 1300s to the 1600s, basically a witchcraft craze rippled across Europe. And tens of thousands of supposed witches, which were mostly women, by the way, were executed. So picture that tens of thousands of in your in your at the European continent. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. from the 1300s to the 1600s. So for 300 mm-hmm. years, tens of thousands of witches were or supposed witches were executed in Europe. Amazing, and uh, you know that went so well in Europe, uh, it came over to Salem, Massachusetts, for a couple of years. Wow, it's just crazy. Well, you know there were. Uh, and there will always be, at least for now, uh, a lot of people out there who delve into the dark arts. And, uh, you know, this was the way of these people over there. Now, look, everybody was not innocent. You know, and the people were policing their own communities and countries in whatever way they felt was best to rid themselves uh, of these individuals that were performing such things, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, I think certainly a lot of innocent people were killed. But And then, like you're saying, though, these places where these horrible things happen end up being an apex for some people that want horrible things to happen uh, and conjuring up spirits and things like that, playing with the devil. <laughs> they will gather in those places now. So certainly... Yeah. Nothing good is going to come out of that. No, no. And look at all the coverage, Kev, you've done uh, with the vampire phenomena, oh, with yeah. the, the graves and the stakes and the bodies when they're uncovered and stuff. You know, there was, you know, Vlad the Impaler. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on and things that we don't, we'll have no knowledge of uh, now or in the future. But who knows exactly what went down We only have a snippet uh, of it available to us to look at. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you you look at... So what happened to 
in Salem specifically to cause these people to be accused of being a witch? You know, generally speaking, what happened? Because then we're going to lead into one of the possible causes here that I think is super interesting. So, you know, one of the accounts is in January 1692 in Salem, Reverend Paris's daughter, Elizabeth, who was nine years old, and a niece of his named Abigail Williams, who was 11, started having what they called fits, in quotation marks. They screamed, they threw things, they made peculiar peculiar sounds, contorted themselves into strange positions, and a local doctor back then blamed the supernatural. Yeah, and another local girl, Anne Putnam, who was 11, she experienced similar symptoms. And on February 29th, under pressure from magistrates, uh, Jonathan Corwin and John Hatthorne, the girls blamed three women for affecting them, or afflicting them, sorry. So, like, here are these three girls are sick. Looks pretty obvious that they probably have... A sickness, not necessarily possession, at least from what's written here, right? It could be anything. And um, the the local magistrates pressured the girls to say, we know your witches. Who possessed you? I mean, wow. It's, it's amazing. So the girls end up blaming uh, a woman named Tatuba, who was the Paris family's Caribbean slave, Sarah Good, who was a homeless beggar, and Sarah Osborne, who was a, a another homeless woman. By the way, I think that was the great-grandmother of Ozzy Osborne. <laughs> not, not really, of course. But I had to throw that in. <laughs> you might be right, mate. Mr. Crowley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair is wear boots and you gotta believe me. <laughs> I'd have to crank up some Black Sabbath after this. <laughs> so, so all three of these women that were accused were brought in front of the local judges, interrogated for several days, and Osborne claimed innocence, as did Good, but apparently Tatuba confessed. She said, the devil came to me and bid me to serve him. She described elaborate images of black dogs, red cats, yellow birds, and a man who wanted her to sign his book. Uh. She admitted that she signed the book and said there were several other witches looking to destroy the Puritans. All three women were put in jail. So you see here, there's a mix, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, definitely a mix, um, which is, you know, pretty wild. So, yeah, I mean, some of these some of these people are outspoken. Like, yeah, I'm a witch. What are you going to do about it, Mac? Yeah. And then you have the kids who who knows what happened to these. uh, It's amazing the age group, and that there was three of them that were doing the same thing or came down with the same if it was some type of malady that's kind of unusual well but we're going to we're going to get to that that's a little foreshadowing okay um so but you know at this time they end up they they establish this special court up there in Salem and um they they build a gallows and uh they start hanging women who are accused of being witches Oh, boy. I mean, just, you know, horrific, horrific. Yep, yep, yep. And then, you know, kind of um, following all of these trials and executions up there in Salem, many involved in uh, the persecution of these women, uh, like Judge Judge Samuel Sewell, publicly confessed error and guilt. And on January 14th, 1697... The general court ordered a day of fasting and soul searching for the tragedy of Salem. So mm. not long after they put all these people to death, they they realized that uh, you know, they made a mistake. A grave oh, mistake. Oh boy. Horrible, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially when you're on the end of the rope. Yeah. 
All right, so we're going to shift gears and we're going to talk about this thing that I read about a few months ago and put it on hold for um, this Halloween episode. So have you ever heard of something called Ergo or Ergot? No. Me neither. So um, it is a fungus that can grow on wheat. And then there's one called Rye Ergot that grows on rye. Mm Mm-hmm. And it turns out that this fungus, uh, which can be pretty common during certain weather conditions, of which those weather conditions did exist uh, when when this researcher went back and looked at the weather conditions in Salem during those years, Mm -hmm. heading into it, that it was prime time for this fungus to grow on the uh, rye. And in fact, rye was a staple of everyone's diet in Salem. Wow. And this stuff is kind of like an LSD. Oh, the, my God. The symptoms are like LSD. Uh-huh. So it causes the, the people who ingest it to uh, uh, hallucinate, um, you know, speak in tongues, so to speak, right? Um, um, shake and, uh, you know, have tremors, paralysis, uh, and, uh, you know, just have a weird effect on the muscles in their body, too, causing them to contort. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the, the theory here with rye or goat is that it, um, it happens. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about from the website Engines of Our Ingenuity and some of the research that went on here. So um, in 1976, which, you know, this initial research happened a long time ago, relatively speaking, a woman named Linda Caporal offered the first evidence that the Salem witch trials followed an outbreak of rye ergo. And, you know, she talks about it being a fungus blight that forms hallucinogenic drugs in bread. Wow. And it's a, she writes, its victims can appear bewitched when they're actually just stoned. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, you know, but uh, a lot of these compounds came from nature, you know. And 100%. Even in the Amazon rainforest, they still have these things that they take. They think it's some type of ritual that just can knock you for a loop for half a day, you know. Exactly. So, so get this, it gets better. So another researcher, Mary uh, Matasian, tells a story about rye or goat that reaches far beyond Salem. She studies seven centuries of demographics, weather, literature, and crop records from Europe and America. Mm-hmm. And she argues that, that many of the drops in population have followed diets heavy in rye bread and weather that favors ergo. And she says, like, during the huge depopulation in the early years of the Black Death, right after 1347 in Europe, conditions were ideal for this fungus. And she writes that the the symptoms, you know, not only could be mistaken for, you know, someone being bewitched, but they're also very similar to the symptoms of the Black Plague. So she mm. thinks that they actually coexist, coexisted at the same time. Wow. Pretty wild. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was a lot going on there. There wasn't uh, the level of education we have today, the insight, the hindsight, the foresight. Uh, so it, it's not shocking by any means that such a thing could transpire under those conditions. Oh, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Mm -hmm. But what's really interesting is uh, she writes that witch hunts, including in Salem during that period, Mm -hmm. that two-year period, witch hunts hardly occurred where people did not eat rye. That's unbelievable. Pretty wild, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's reasonably strong evidence. I I mean I thought it was super interesting because I had never yeah. heard of it before, mm-hmm. and uh, then then came across it tied to uh, uh, you know the witch hunts in Salem 
and then mm-hmm. saw it tied back then into uh, the Black Plague as well. So pretty, really, pretty uh, wild stuff. Yeah, incredible, Kev. Uh, nice little exegesis there on the uh, connection between the two. And uh, See, we could look back now with a little help from our friends and uh, see in different areas and put connected dots, which they had not available to them at that point in time. They had no idea what was going on. Exactly. Uh, but, uh, boy, that's some excellent stuff, excellent stuff. Cool. And... Uh, is that a wrap on that story? That is a wrap on uh, the witches. And uh, again, if you have any hate mail, send it to my brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, get ready. <laughs> Generals gathered in their masses, <laughs> just like witches at black masses. <laughs> In the fields were bodies burning As the war machine kept turning Oh, da, da. <laughs> So I don't think we can get in copyright trouble if you're singing. <laughs> <laughs> now, folks, no Bigfoot here today. But I want you to listen to this story coming out of Nebraska. And in the end, you make your own judgment as to just what was going on here, because this is a mind-blowing series of events coming from a farm in Nebraska. When we're speaking of Bigfoot, we're speaking of cryptids, strange goings-on in a variety of different ways and settings, as we all know. This is one such strange occurrence that was brought to my attention by Jerry Conforti, a resident of the state of Nebraska. And now I will step aside and allow you to hear Jerry tell his brief but spine-tingling tale. My family was born and bred as farmers, generationally going back 150 years in this state. We have land holdings that reach far and wide, growing both corn and soybeans. And I have been part of it for some 50 years to date. My two sons, who at the time were 11 and 14 years old, had come home after riding their quads through the fields. The two of them had come busting through the back door, screaming and jabbering one over the other about having seen some type of monster in the standing corn. Now, this field of which which they were speaking had not been turned under as of yet, so it was comprised of standing, dried-out corn stalks. And we are talking about hundreds and hundreds of acres of standing stalks. After I had calmed them down, I asked Arnie, my oldest, to tell me what had happened. He said that he and Cole were riding through the southeast field when a huge dog had emerged from the corn ahead of them. The two of them had backed off the throttle as this dog was facing them at about 50 yards. Hunched down on its front paws with its fangs exposed and snarling. He then went on to say that the dog's eyes in broad daylight were glowing bright red and twinkling. I looked at the two of them knowing that they were good boys and not prone to lying or spinning a tail, and they were both visibly shook up about what they had seen. It was then that Cole, who was the real jabberjaw of the two, started to chime in saying how big the thing was. He said its hindquarters, when hunched down, were a good four feet from the ground, and its body at least 20 inches wide. Now, we have nothing in the area which can remotely fit this description, and I personally knew everyone in the surrounding area as well as all of their hounds and animals, and nobody owned anything which would fit the bill of what the boys had described. 
During the week which followed, I was extremely busy doing some much-needed maintenance around the farm and on the equipment, as well as a lot of paperwork. But even in my business, I had realized the boys hadn't fired up the quads once. And this was a passion of theirs, in particular this time of year. So having put aside much of my work, I asked the boys to take a ride with me out to where they had seen this dog. For up until this point, I hadn't done so, and I wanted to put this thing to rest one way or another. I took my shotgun and coal on one quad, while Arnie took the lead on the other, and we rode down into the southeast field together. Arnie had stopped, and when I asked him if this was a spot, he said, no, it's over there. In other words, he didn't even want to ride close to where they had seen it. That's how frightened he still was over what he had seen. So the three of us got off the quads, and I, of course, was toting my side-by-side, and we slowly walked over to the area just ahead of us. As soon as Cole had said, that's where it came out of, my eyes were drawn immediately to numerous prints in the soil, which were definitely from some type of canine and were about five inches wide. These were bigger than any dog print I had ever seen, and there had never been reports of any wolves for as long as I had been alive. Now I knew my boys were telling the truth, and to be honest with you, I hadn't doubted that they saw something. I was just wondering, as any parent would do, if they hadn't misidentified what they had seen. Now, I'm going to go fast forward here several months later, prior to which I had spoken personally to every one of my neighbors, none of whom had seen anything like what my boys had described on their land. All of these men, by the way, were regularly out on their properties in tractors and trucks taking care of business, and I had thought surely that someone would have or should have seen something, but they hadn't. We had about a dozen cats on our property, all of which lived in the barn. Their job was to keep the field mice and such down to a low roar, each of them having been named by my family. My wife, Lisa, was talking during dinner one evening and said she hadn't seen Herman in a while, thinking he had died. Don't ask me why the cat's name was Herman. I didn't name any of them, but it was. The very next day, I was riding down into the southwest corner of the property in my truck when, for whatever reason, something caught my eye on the ground, causing me to stop and get out. Lying in front of me on the ground was the gray head of Herman the cat. I could tell just looking at it that it had been torn from the body and not cleanly bitten off. I should also mention that never at any time in the past had any of our animals been found dead on our land. We had found skeletal remains of cats that had wandered off to die in the fields, but never anything the likes of what I was now seeing. In the moment, a dark and eerie feeling began to take hold of me, which I had never experienced on my land. I began to feel like I was being watched, and I became really, really uncomfortable. I went back to the house and told no one about finding Herman's head or what I had felt when I was in the field, keeping everything to myself. It was several days later while working in the barn that my wife had come out and said to me, Honey, is everything okay? You haven't been yourself lately. At that point, I told her all that had happened. Four days later, after the sun had long been set for the day, my shepherd began to bark violently as I walked to the back door and opened it to take a look. This was very unusual behavior for the dog, and he was going nuts. My shepherd weighed a good 125 pounds, and as I looked out, I could see him and the outline of another animal, which appeared to be a dog or a wolf running into the darkness. It was at least three or four times my shepherd's size. I went inside, grabbed his leash and my gun, 
and everyone was asking me what's wrong. But I told them to stay in the house. Arnie, being the oldest, showed his young manhood and grabbed his twenty-two caliber rifle to step outside with me, which made me very proud of the boy at the time. The two of us, with guns and flashlights in hands, made our way over to where I had just seen this thing dart away, and my dog would go no closer, pulling on his leash, dragging me away from the area. I tethered the dog, and Arnie and I walked over together. Once again, looking down on the ground, there were these enormous canine prints, just like the ones I had seen in the field. This was the first time in all my years of being there that I had seen any type of predatory evidence on my home's property. And for the first time in my life, I was fearing for my family's safety. Anything that big could easily kill a human or any other animal, and now I was worried. Since I now knew that this creature was in fact coming near to my home, I had decided to throw out some venison from my meat freezer in an effort to bait and shoot the beast. I elevated the motion detector on my rear light to hopefully pick anything further out in the yard, pick up anything further out in the yard, which had previously been angled to catch the truck pulling up, and I began to set my baits. For two weeks, I set fresh bait intermittently, and I was sleeping in my recliner by the rear bay window, facing the outside, hoping that the light coming on would wake me, which, in fact, it did. It was Thursday night at about 2 a.m. I was awoken by the light. As I gathered my thoughts, I immediately peered through the glass, and there it was. I could only describe it as a hound from hell, leaning over the meat in the dim light. Every time it lifted its head between bites, the light hit its eyes, and they were luminescent, red, and wide-set. The head on this thing must have been nearly a foot wide at the back of its jaws, and its white fangs jutted up and down within its mouth. As I tried to make my way out of the recliner to grab my gun, the monster's eyes were suddenly fixated in my direction, and I froze. Seconds later, it dipped its head back down to take another bite, and I stood up, grabbing my gun. Hold on. Are you grabbing your gun? Right here. I had two pages <laughs> mixed up in sequence. As soon as I had grabbed it, this beast lurched its head forward and started to turn in a manner which told me that I had been found out. For whatever reason, in the heat of the moment, thinking that all my hard work would be for naught should this thing turn and run, I shoved the barrel of my shotgun right through the pane of glass and pulled the trigger. This was strictly a point-and-shoot, all-or-nothing gamble on my part, and as the shot rang out, I saw the hindquarters of this monster lift into the air, having been hit by my load. It jumped in kind of a gimpy movement, indicating to me that I had damaged its leg, and it moved off into the darkness. The whole household was awoken by the ordeal, and we spent the entire night looking out into the backyard. In the morning, as soon as it was light enough to see, I walked out by the bait and saw the blood on the ground. In the days and weeks to come, I was unable to locate the body of this creature, even with the assistance of my neighbors. It wasn't until many months later that my friend Greg ran across a skeleton while turning under his field and called me to come have a look. It was a massive skeleton of a huge canine, with some, of the, with some of the fur still attached. It measured close to six feet from the tip of its snout back. It was enormous. 
I would have to say that based on the skeleton of this beast, that it would have weighed several hundred pounds or perhaps even more. None of us had any idea as to what it was or where it had come from, but we were sure this was the animal which I had shot. There was actually a lead pellet stuck in the bone of its hind leg, and the same leg seemed to have been damaged, more than likely by the same shot. I had never seen anything with glowing, wide-set red eyes prior to this event. Nor have I, since. What this was, I have no idea. But I thought that I would share it with you. What do you think of that, Kev? Whoa. So you think it's like a dire wolf or something? You took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. I mean, there ain't no... Now, look, I've been told uh, by my friends up in uh, Minnesota, Wyoming area, that timber wolves uh, are large and the big ones grow upwards of, you know, like two and a quarter weight-wise. Yeah. Uh, But this thing, and here we go again. Remember the little kid, the young boy initially said, had glowing red eyes and they were twinkling. Yeah. That's kind of freaking weird. Like they were flashing in his mind as he's looking at it, you know. I now, don't know. They, they didn't sound seem to be like self-illuminating though, right? Like cuz they were on the quad so you could figure they had their lights on and then this time he had the lights set to come on. Right? To, right. to to illuminate this thing. Right. So, you know, and it seems it seems to be like a flesh and blood beast, right? Of course they find a skeleton with the lead shot in it, you know. Yeah, I mean it it's so it's so hard to put your finger on what exactly is going on here. Because you're tripped up by what to my mind seems like a supernatural thing. And yet we have something eating venison. Uh the dog is afraid of it. Yep. And then we find the carcass of it after having been shot down and dying of its wound. Yep. But what's with the freaking red twinkling eyes coming off and on? And I I don't know anything in nature, in the natural world, that does such things. Yeah. It's so bizarre. Yeah, and it was interesting, too, going back to the beginning of the story, where the kids were so frightened that he didn't see them going out on the quads for a while afterwards, even though it was their favorite activity. So that tells you how frightened these guys were. Yeah, like, hey, man, I don't want nothing. You think this thing could get the jump on you and I'll be dead. Yeah, which, by the way, that would scare the heck out of me seeing that thing. Yeah, you best believe it. And here you are riding around with all this standing corn around. There's plenty of places to hide. Yeah. Uh, and anything could get the jump on you. No you doubt know, about so. it. Uh, no, I'm with you on that. Even with a shotgun, uh, if something came up from behind you or the side and, and got the jump on you, you wouldn't have time to draw or point and shoot. No. No, forget it. That's the thing, you know. Forget it. So there you have it, man. That is one freaky story coming out of Nebraska. Very cool. And uh, I, I don't know, man. Make of it what you will, folks, but... Uh, there's plenty of high strangeness going on in the U.S. of A. <laughs> While we're That's sitting wild. here Nebraska, doing... Nebraska, Nebraska, cornfield. Could happen tonight coming up on Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, the holiday, Kev, uh, has changed dramatically since we were young. You know, I was telling some of my coworkers last night uh, who went to one of these uh, professionally done uh, houses or buildings where you walk through and they just scared the bejeebas out of you. <laughs> and I was telling them how when we were kids, these costumes could be bought in a five and dime store at a stationery store. They had a little cardboard box with a plastic cellophane window on them. 
And you could see the Batman mask or the the princess or whatever. They were those little plastic things with a rubber band oh, yeah. on them went around your head. Yeah, they were awesome. And you, yeah, you had that little kind of flimsy costume that just tied on the back. It basically was on the front of you. Yeah, and it you was know. good for like wearing it once when you went trick-or-treating. Right. Maybe and once then, in school that day at like the school parade for the elementary schoolers, and then once trick or treating that night, and then it would like disintegrate. Yeah, they were like cheap, you know. Yeah, and then we went to some of these rubber masks that became increasingly more grotesque, and now like these Halloween events. Now, one thing, my one coworker who was sitting behind me last night and the girls were hashing over what had happened or transpired in this creep fest they went to. And the one girl said, I didn't like that last event in that one building, you know, with Satan. And they went on to talk about it. They actually had a, an actor no doubt dressed up in some really bizarre makeup scheme, looking like uh, Satan. And he was sacrificing a baby on a table. Oh, my God. And I said to myself, I didn't say anything to them, but I said to myself, you know, during this time of year, there was some real evil afoot. Well, and of course, Bill, you mean sac- you know pretending to sacrifice exactly, you know, but not the, a, no, not a real baby or anything right. The like depiction, that. though, but yeah. to have even that. Oh no, it's horrific. I just wanted to make sure, uh, you know, yeah, the crime wasn't committed here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, this is what they saw in this. You know, and you know how it is. I've been in some of them in years gone by. You know, they got people tied up in electric chairs and shaking around, people jumping out at you, screaming. And the makeup jobs are just horrific. Like, they were all freaked out by this clown that had fangs and blood dripping out of its jaws. Oh, yeah. It's just so over the top now that it's beyond what used to be uh, a somewhat innocent thing, you know? And uh, Yeah, we... we so... Yeah, I, uh, Bill, I, I agree with you 100%. It's over the top now, and I won't even go near that stuff. You know. Yeah, I have no, no way. Now, yeah. on the lighter side, mm-hmm. we have a neighbor here in the neighborhood that, like, creeps out the whole front yard like a graveyard and stuff like that for the month before Halloween. Uh-huh. But he's also got a pretty good sense of humor, apparently, because he has this, like, it's got to be seven foot tall, you know, Mike Michael Myers with the mask on and stuff mm-hmm. and the, the black or dark blue kind of utility clothes on like Michael Myers from the Creepfest movies. Uh, like coveralls. Yeah, coveralls, right. And But so he's standing there and he's got this like two foot long blade in his hand, you know, dripping in blood. Mm-hmm. And expressionless, right? That expressionless mask. So that's not enough. But he moves this thing around. So, and it really looks like you—you you would not go near this because it could be somebody in costume. It's not clear that it's fake. <laughs> and uh, like when he first put it out a few weeks ago, it was on the front porch. You know, and you're like, oh, okay. And I was walking around the block the other night, and it was on the sidewalk in front of his house. <laughs> Needless to say, I went to the other side of the street. <laughs> oh, I'll send you a picture of this thing, and you'll be like, "Oh my god!" Like, <laughs> yeah, it's shifting around. Like, wasn't yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, like, what a sense of humor that he has. Like, moving. I mean, every night it's somewhere else. Like, you know. You'd be like, oh, where's Mike tonight? And then you're like, whoa, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got your attention, which was his intent. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, my brother, what do we have in our listener mail? Yeah, we got some good listener mail this week, Bill. Let me uh, 
find my place here. A good range of stuff. You know, we'll start out. We have a, a little bit of a Halloween joke here from Diane. And uh, uh, she says, another great show last week. I tried to listen again to episode 70 from Halloween 2020. And it was so scary, I had to turn it off again. (laughs) (laughs) You did warn that it was not for kitties. And now I know it's not for Freddy cats either. (laughs) So while you're planning for your Halloween creep fest, I thought you might enjoy a chuckle. Why doesn't Bigfoot like to eat ghosts? Why doesn't Bigfoot like to eat ghosts? Not like to eat ghosts. I don't know. Because they taste like a sheet. Ah, <laughs> uh, Diane, Diane. Thank you, Diane. That was uh, that was actually pretty good uh, mom or dad joke for Halloween. <laughs> I, I liked it. I liked it. Ay, ay, ay. Oh, interesting, Diane. <laughs> All right, we have one from Chester. And uh, Chester is in the UK. He says, I love the show. And your half as popular brother, Bill. <laughs> anyway, some days <laughs> I'll get the, I'll just uh, say, courage, but he yeah. has another uh, description there, to uh-huh. actually tell you my story about my encounter with the big guy from 35 years ago. Huh? I'm from New England. An avid striper fisherman, and I can relate to both of your senses of humor. Uh Uh-huh. I've been in law enforcement for 30-plus years and love all cryptid things. That's a broad statement there, I have to say, Chester. And I I said you were from the U.K. I misread it initially. You're from New England, so not the U.K. Okay. He said, I wanted to say that I feel terrible for your loss and wanted to just say from one old guy to another that you're not alone, ever. I was born a Catholic and have great faith that you will see your wife again someday. I can guarantee Mm -hmm. that if I were closer to you and Kev's locale, I'd probably end up fishing together with you and reminiscing about old TV shows. And yes, yowee. (laughs) Hang in there, brother. You have a lot of support here. Chester. Awesome, Chester. So thank you, Chester. It's very nice. Yeah, much appreciated. Yeah. Send me any pictures of any large bass you've caught. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And we have like a tech support question here that we've had before. So I do want to read it and uh, share it. Hopefully help out a few people. So this is from Carol. um, And she writes in, I'm not the sharpest tool, I guess, but I thought I'd be able to download a podcast directly from your website as an MP3 file. I don't see a way to do that. So, Carol, you are not alone, but we can't. I know some folks are able to do a direct download from their website, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, but it's very difficult to make that work at scale. So, meaning... When you have, you know, millions of folks trying to download it from a website, that website has to be so big and it's so expensive to run. So instead, my brother and I give it to a hosting facility that automatically distributes it globally as soon as we push save. And then it's out on all of the favorite podcast players. So like if you have an iPhone, you go to the podcast app and just search on Bigfoot Terror in the Woods. And, and you can subscribe, and it's real important that you subscribe to all episodes, and then they'll get pushed to you every time we release a new one. And, you know, you could do it from other podcast players as well. Mm-hmm. So you're not alone trying to do that. We do put them, we do put the names and description of them up on the website because it's a lot easier to search for something you may have missed than, in fact, going to your favorite podcast player. They're great for playing, but not so great for searching and keeping track of, in my opinion. So, yeah, thank, yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, and just uh, stick with the podcast player 
and look for that Bigfoot Terror in the Woods and uh, just subscribe to it. You know, I think a lot of issues occur, Kev, uh, in this electronic age with people's unfamiliarity with all of these different uh, apps and players. And Oh, it's confusing. Yeah, and, you know, what works for me doesn't work for you on your app, and how come this is happening? And I run across this stuff all the time. You know, you're befuddled uh, left and right, especially if you have limited knowledge of really what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Bill, you know I'm a techie, but I learned a ton about podcasts and how they work by us doing this podcast. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's not it's not that easy. So I right. get it. Uh, hang in there. Don't sweat uh, questions and uh, just stick with your podcast player. All right, Bill. And our last uh, email comes in. It's it's a good one. Uh, it's a little longer and it includes an encounter. So this comes in from Ray and Sue in Pennsylvania. And he writes, WJ and KJ, hello. My girl Sue and I love your podcast, and we listen to your shows several times a week while we're relaxing on the deck after work and when we go on long drives. We live in Pennsylvania. We find your show very interesting and entertaining, and we tell all of our friends about it especially when we know they love the outdoors, whether they're campers, hikers, or hunters. My, my wife is a huge Bigfoot fan, and she has five of your audiobooks. They are fantastic. And Ray writes, We visited the Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, two years ago while on our way to Acadia National Park. It was awesome to see all the big footprints, and I recently got... My wife, a Patterson Giblin Bigfoot cast to hang on the wall of our living room. Wow. <laughs> you got a good bride there, Ray. I, I couldn't get away with that. But that, by the way, that cryptozoology museum, Bill, and you know it, but let's give a little plug for it here as well. I yeah. went there, and interestingly enough, Ray, I might have been there the same time as you, because it was like two years ago when I was on my way up to Maine, or actually I was on my way back from Maine when I stopped in uh, the museum for the first time, and it is fantastic. Yeah. So really good stuff. And then uh, he goes on and shifts gears a little bit, and he says, I know you always say, if you see something, say something. I didn't see something, but I heard something, and I know exactly what it was. It was a hairy man. It was on Tuesday, September 6th, 2022, at 4.30 a.m. We rented an Airbnb in the mountains of Rileyville, Virginia. We went to bed at a decent time the night before, and I woke up at about 3.30 a.m. and went out on the deck to look at the sky to see if I could see the stars in the Virginia mountains. On a clear night in this area, you have a fantastic view of the sky. When I went out that morning, there were hundreds of stars, so I let my girl sleep, and I just sat down on the deck admiring the stars, enjoying the peace, and listening to the sounds of nature. I had looked at my phone around 4.15 to check the weather of the upcoming day, and then I put it down. At 4.25, I heard loud screams in the distance. I had heard it before on different recordings of Bigfoot that I've seen on YouTube, so I knew what it was. It all happened so fast. First, I thought about picking up my phone and recording it on the audio app, but it wasn't very loud, and I didn't think it would pick it up. In hindsight, I wish I just did it in case it worked. Mm -hmm. Then I thought about running upstairs and waking up my girl to come out so she could hear it, but I didn't know if it would stop. Then I tried to figure out where it was coming from. It was a loud scream, but it was low. So it was in the distance. Thank goodness, by the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was looking west at the mountain range across the way, so the sound came from the north, and I estimated it to be a couple of miles away. Again, it happened so fast, it only lasted about 60 seconds. I continued to listen, but that was it. Then I thought, what if, what if it was someone hooked up to a recording of a Bigfoot and was running it through several loudspeakers, 
But if someone was doing that at 4.30 a.m. in the morning, they'd be arrested. So I ruled that out. I wish the sound would have continued so I could have woken up my girl so she could hear it too. Later that morning, I had to tell her what happened. She was bummed. But on the bright side, Bigfoot didn't show up when we were in the hot tub on the deck. <laughs> yeah, on the bright side. No doubt about it, Ray. Keep up the great work. We love your show. Thanks, Ray and Sue. Fantastic. Yeah, great, great email. Wow, man. So, again, folks, if you've seen something, say something. BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. Hit the contact button and tell us what you have experienced. Well, great show, Bill. Happy Halloween, everyone. Be safe out there. Have some fun. Have a few laughs. Uh, Stay away from the demonic haunted houses, though. And uh, watch out for Mike Myers if he's standing on the sidewalk when you walk down the street. Yeah, stay clear of the butcher knife. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, folks... If you should find yourself walking through the standing corn in Nebraska, you better remember one thing. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Happy Halloween. (laughs) 